In light of that promise, let us open God's Word now to Revelation chapter 6. I'll be reading from verse 1 to the end of the chapter, verse 17. Revelation chapter 6 gives us instructions of what is to come in preparation for the coming of the Lord. What is to come in preparation for God's final and consummate kingdom uh, to be fully manifested here on the earth? Revelation chapter 6 gives us the information to prepare us for that coming. Here is the word of the Lord for us. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and hates followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with a famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, Holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig trees shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who? 
can stand. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts. Father in heaven, we are privileged to receive your revelation, the disclosure of your plans with the earth. Father, as we hear this word, we pray that you would give us ears to hear well, hearts to receive it. Father, we pray that you would magnify the glory of Christ, not only through salvation, but also through the message of judgment. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen. For those of you who are visiting us, we are working our way through the book of Revelation. Last few Sundays, we have covered uh, one of the most important parts of the book of Revelation, um, uh, chapters 4 and 5, which uh, gave us a vision of the throne room of God. The Apostle John was taken on a vision tour, if you will, to see the throne room of God in heaven. And he described it in some glorious ways. But as glorious a vision of God was in chapter 4, the, the drama in the throne room begins to, to develop as um, attention has been focused on a scroll that was laying on the arm of the one who was seated on the throne. And the, the rest of chapter 5 told us uh, that Jesus alone is worthy to take the scroll. An, open, uh, an angel had asked in heaven, who is open, who's able, who's, who's worthy, to be precise, who's worthy to open the scroll? And we found out in chapter 5 that Jesus, and Jesus alone, no one else is qualified, no one else is able no one else is worthy to open this scroll that was laying on the arm of the one who was seated on the throne. The, ref, the rest of chapter 5 was full of praises to the Lamb and to the one on the throne for being able to open the scroll. But now as we get to chapter 6, we get to see the, this drama unfold. That, fold, that scroll was not only taken by the Lamb, but that scroll is now opened. What happens not only when the lamb takes the scroll, but what happens when the lamb begins to open each of its seven seals? With the opening of the seven seals of, uh, of the scroll, we are getting into some of the more difficult part of the book of Revelation, particularly because the opening of the scroll has one overall message. The opening of each of the seven seals of the scroll has one overall message. And the message is this. God's judgments are being revealed. God's judgments are being revealed. Friends, an essential part of the Christian message is that the blood of Christ is the ransom price for the rescue from sin, for all those who repent of sin and trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. There is no other means by, me, by which men and women can be rescued from sin except by Jesus who shed His blood as a ransom price to rescue us, to redeem us, to purchase us for Himself and for His God. Next Sunday, 
Lord willing, the Lord keeps us alive. We will hear testimonies from Jen and Alex Durham, and we will witness their baptism. They will publicly profess through their mouth and through their action, through the act of baptism that they have been rescued from sin. They have been rescued from darkness by the blood of Jesus and are now publicly professing to be followers of Jesus. We look forward to that testimony. In the evening service next Sunday night, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. In the morning baptism, in the evening, the Lord's Supper. It will be a glorious Sunday. Both of those events, however, what they have at the center is they show visibly what Jesus has done for those who repent and trust in Him. Both of those events show also what the people who have been ransomed by Jesus do with the news that they hear. They internalize it. They identify with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, dear friends, has ransomed a people for God through His blood. But I love what Leon Morris, an Australian theologian, said. He said, Christ's death is not only salvation from sin, but condemnation of sin. In other words, when we look at the death of Christ, we should see in it not only the price of the redemption of all those who repent and trust in Christ, but we should also see in it God's condemnation of sin and rebellion. While this news is fantastic news for the world, sadly, the world continues to ignore and to reject the news of Christ's death. The world not only rejects this news, the world also has treated God's servants and prophets with disdain, with mockery, and even with persecution. And it is the death of Christ that makes Jesus not only able to ransom people for God, but also to take the scroll and open it so that the death of Jesus is also the grounds on which God's judgments against the earth are also revealed. You see, dear friends, the death of Jesus not only qualifies Jesus to ransom people for God, the death of Jesus also qualifies him to begin unfolding God's judgments against an earth that continues to ignore, to turn its back, and even to persecute those who follow God. Now, how are we to make sense of these seven seals that are beginning to uh, be opened? Six of these seals are described in the chapter we have just read. And there's a pattern to how these seals are, are opened, and the same pattern will be repeated when the seven trumpets will be blown. Um, so we're going to look at this pattern. Four of the seals are very similar together. They are described in a very quick way. Then there's, uh, with the fifth seal, there's like a pause in judgments. And then there's a sixth seal, which picks up God's judgment again. And the way we're going to look at it, it's, think of it, four plus two plus a break plus one. That's going to make the seven. I'm not doing my fingers correctly here, but four plus two plus a break plus seven. The break is in chapter seven, and the seventh seal is in chapter eight. So think about these seals are spread over three chapters. Chapter 6, 
covers the first six seals. Now, we will not have six points for the sermon. They will only be two points. For those of you who like taking notes, uh, the first four seals, we're going to look at them together in one point. And the uh, next two seals, seal five and six, we're going to look at them together. If we were to separate these and, and look at these together and, and uh, try to put them in these two major points, here's one way to divide these, four po- these um, six seals together. The first four, God's judgments throughout history. The second point for the second uh, set of seals, seal five and six, we're going to see God's judgment at the end of history. So God's judgment throughout history, God's judgments at the end of history. As we look at each of these two points, let's begin to see and observe what happens when the Lamb begins opening the scroll. In verse 1, the opening of the scroll begins with a call given to four horsemen to come and to bring certain plagues upon the earth. Uh, because these are, horsemen are described so uh, shortly and so similarly, it's important for us to uh, interpret them together. Uh, a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and a pale horse. What are we to make of these? Uh, briefly, each of these four horses. The white horse in verse 1 and 2. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse. Its rider had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Some interpreters have thought that perhaps this white uh, ho- uh, horse rider on the white horse um, might refer to Jesus, uh, especially because Jesus appears on a white horse in Revelation 19. But that is a faulty interpretation. Um, we, when Jesus comes on the white horse, it's the end of the world. Uh, these four horsemen... It's not about the end of the world just yet. Uh, we're going to get to see that in a second. Uh, these, this first white horse is white. He receives a crown. And with him, there's three more coming. When Jesus comes, he comes alone on a white horse. Um, also, the coming of Jesus on a white horse is associated with a seventh pair in each of the three cycles. The seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh uh, bowl. Here we are at the very first of the seals. A better way to understand this rider is to recognize that actually the, right, the horsemen have been used in the Old Testament uh, to uh, deal with God's actions upon the earth. God has sent horsemen in the book of Ezekiel. We also see in the book of Jeremiah that God, when he came to discipline the land of Israel and destroy it because of its sins, God sent kings on horses and with bows. Uh, this is how Jeremiah describes the, the attack of the Babylonians upon the land of Israel. And the same pattern is here when God is calling out horsemen to come and conquer. But then we see that along with the white re- horse, there's a red horse in, cha- in verses 3 and 4. And amazingly, with the, the red horse, the horseman on the red horse, is not just that he is killing and he is conquering, but he has an interesting power. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright and red. Its rider, notice what it was allowed to do, was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. 
It's not merely that the horseman here destroys the people of the earth. He has an, a unique power to take peace from the earth so that the people of the earth themselves would begin slaying one another, butchering one another, fighting against each other, destroying one another. The fact that these are taken from us, the fact that peace is taken from us, means that we cannot produce our peace. We cannot keep it on our own. We cannot supply it for ourselves. We cannot create lasting security on our own. The black horse, uh, he, has, he brings another play, verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, the black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. The picture here is a picture of small amounts of food costing a lot of money, an entire day, day's wages, uh, the plague of famine. The plague of famine. This is the plague of the third horse. But even this plague, we are told, is measured. It's not entirely uh, done. There's, there's still a sense of bring famine, but it's under control. Don't hurt the wine and the, the olive oil. A fourth horse comes, a pale horse, in verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword, with a famine, and with pestilence, and with wild beasts of the earth. It's interesting, this Ford horseman comes with an assistant. An assistant. Not only death personified, but his assistant, his helper, Hades. That's a personification of, of the world of the dead in the Old Testament times. They not only bring um, death, but they specifically bring it through the war, through the famine, which have already been mentioned earlier, but they also bring it through pestilences and wild beasts. Now, what are we to make? What are we to make of this message of four horsemen bringing this disaster, this devastation against the earth? One of the important questions that we must ask is, when are these things going to start taking place? And this is where Bible interpreters start having different views on how they answer uh, this question. Some would argue that these horsemen come in a distant future, right before the second coming of Christ. Now, it is true that these horsemen are, pre are presented as description of the end times. That is true. But according to the New Testament, the end times has already started with the first coming of Jesus Christ. This is what the Apostle John said in 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Beginning with the first century, Christians have understood that the last times, the end of the age, 
has already dawned in its beginning stages. Not climactically, not in its fullness, but the beginning of the end has already started with the first coming of Jesus. And these four horsemen are inaugurated, have, have, have been leashed out along with the beginning of the end. The plagues of these four horsemen are not unusual plagues. The plague of the sword, of the famine, of pestilences, of wild beasts are plagues that God has carried out in various ways even in the Old Testament times. Actually, these particular plagues, these particular four plagues are all mentioned by God when He threatens and warns His people that He's coming to destroy Jerusalem and Israel because of their sins and will take them into exile. Let me just give you an example. There's a few more. Ezekiel 14, 21. For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. Every one of them is represented in the four horsemen. These, these plagues are not new. God has already carried out a measure of them in the exile of His people when He exiled them into Babylon. Such verses appear elsewhere in the Old Testament. What is new in the book of Revelation is that these plagues now are not merely limited to the Old Testament nation of Israel for their rebellion. Now these plagues have a, a wider canvas. They're now declared against all the earth because of the rebellion of the earth. And when we read in chapter 6, verse 8, these plagues have a measure. They are not fully going to, to fully destroy the earth. There is a measure to these plagues. These are measured and controlled. And the measure of these plagues is one-fourth of the earth. We see that in, in verse 8. When we compare this fraction... With, another, with the other fractions that are going to come up in the book of Revelation, this is the smallest of the fractions. The trumpets are going to go to one-third, and eventually we're going to get to a full earth. Here we get just a fraction. So the point about these four horsemen is that each of these plagues have already been at work among us in various times in the last 2,000 years, in various places. Friends, just think of the casualties of war. Just think of the of the increasing violence that we see around us. It's been going on for centuries now. Now, what's the point we should take from the plagues of these four horsemen? Here are two points to take from them. The first one, each of them come at God's command. Notice, none of these horsemen come of their own initiative. They only come when one of the four living creatures that surrounds the throne room of God says, Come. And, 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 and the four living creatures don't say, Come, until the Lamb breaks a seal and opens a scroll. These are judgments that are spread out around the earth, throughout the earth, in a measured way, at the command of God. You might ask, why would God act this way? 
when we rebel against our maker, when we put ourselves in the place of our maker, just like the people of Israel in the Old Testament times, when God has given them the land, when God has saved them, when God has rescued them, yet they have turned away from their maker, they have, they have engaged in idol worship, they've made creation and replaced it with, replaced God with creation, so they now worship created beings, the hand, the, the works of their own hands. God brought them to destruction. God promised, warned them of these judgments, and God in the Old Testament has carried them out. And now the same pattern continues in the New Testament. Only that's at the greater scale. Friends, why would God do that? Because the people whom God created rebelled against their maker. And the effect that we get when we replace our maker with our creation, when we put on the throne of our lives created things or beings, what we get as a result of that is the destruction that creation itself has against us. If we worship anything but God, whatever that is, eventually it will destroy us. Here God is using creation, things in creation, to bring about these plagues. The second point we should learn, not only God, that these come under the control of God because of a rebellious earth, a second thing we should learn from these four plagues that our world is not a place of lasting security. The threats conveyed by the seals challenge the idea that the current world offers us any security. Now, for the Christians who are already going through trying times, do you remember the Christians of Smyrna who were persecuted for their faith? And God said, Behold, I'm, an, hour of, an hour is coming when you will be tested. You'll be going through some very hard stuff. For the Christians who are suffering for their faith, the news of these plagues is nothing new. It only explains why things are the way they are. But for the Christians who are flourishing and prospering in the eyes of the world, like the Christians in the church in Laodicea, remember how they boasted in the money they had? Remember how they boasted in the resources they had? These visions are aimed to jolt us out of any hopes of finding security in this world. God's judgments are throughout history to remind us that God is in control and to remind us that this world is not a safe place for us. But there's a second point that we see in these seals. The second major point, if you like taking notes, the second major point is that God's judgments also at the end of history. The fifth seal and the sixth seal belong to a category of their own. The fifth seal is like a break from the previous four seals. It portrays not judgments. It portrays the souls of those who had been slain. Notice why they were slain in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. The vision of these souls and the question they ask give us a hint that the first four soul, uh, plagues, they're not the judgment of God to avenge their blood. There is another judgment that they're waiting for. 
whatever the first four seals were does not answer what they are hoping for and what God had promised. Notice, notice how they address God in verse 10. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. I want you to think about who these people are. They are the souls of those who have been killed because of their faith. And notice how they address God. Oh, sovereign Lord. It's a, it's a word that can be translated also as a master, as a ruler, as the one who's in control, despotes. We even have the word despot in English. That's a word that's used here. Oh, despot. It's not in a negative way. It's, oh, one who you are able to do whatever you want. You are in control of all things. Nothing challenges you. Oh, sovereign Lord. And then they not only say that, but they say, holy and true. But they have just been killed. They are the ones who have just been killed. Those who die for their faith in God do not change their view of who God is. They still address Him as the one in charge, as the one in control. I thought to myself as I meditated on these words, ask yourself, Samuel, is this how you view God when you go through difficulties and deep trials? Would I approach God with these words, O sovereign Lord, holy and true? What, when things are not going the way I want them to go, when things don't go the way I would appreciate, there's something powerful in the way these souls address God, even though they have been martyred. Notice what they ask of God, verse 10. They cry with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're their question reveals that they're confident that God will judge and avenge your blood. That God will bring justice to all injustice. Now, you might ask, why are they asking God to avenge their blood? Well, in Romans 12, 19, we have the following instruction. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. These believers were confident that even though the greatest injustice has been carried against them by the dwellers of the earth, they have a God who will repay in wrath. And they have been pleased to leave the avengeance in the hands of a God who will repay with his wrath. Their question is not whether God will do it. Their question is simply, Lord, how long before you do it? Again, the fact that this question comes after the four seals with the four horsemen already tells us that the wrath of God that is promised is not the first four horsemen. The first, think about the first four horsemen more like an appetizer. You know when you go to a, to a, to a place and even, even before you get your full entree, they might either, if you order appetizer, you'll get an appetizer. Even if you don't get an appetizer, they'll still bring you some bread. 
right, to, to munch on. These four horsemen are like that for what's coming. That should give us great chills. Notice the answer they receive. And the answer God gives these souls under the altar tells us that we're not dealing here with the end of the end. We're dealing here with a progression that leads towards the end. Verse 11, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves have been. Had been. In other words, God is giving them white robes which in the two of the seven letters were also used and promised. They are robes to those who conquer. Um, the robes are given to, to, to these martyrs to let them know you have conquered. Yes, you have died. Yes, in the eyes of the world, it looks like you have lost your life. You have lost everything. You are a loser. There's nothing left of you. You are done in this earth. God says, no, I am going to give you a white robe. It's a robe offered to those who conquer. And then there is a message. Rest a little longer. And then there is another instruction. And the instruction is, I am not bringing my vengeance yet. Because the number of martyrs is not yet complete. Let that sink in. Martyrdom, first of all, it means, does not take God for surprise. Martyrdom is not opposite of God's will. The fact that there is a number of martyrs that must be completed shows that God has this number under his control. We don't know the number that God has set. The Bible doesn't tell us that number. But by telling us there's a number, it should give us peace that even martyrdom is part of God's plan for some of God's people. And the worst people, the worst thing that happened to someone faced with persecution is not death. God will not bring judgment until the full number of martyrs has been met. So if God is not yet avenging their blood, it is because there's more to come. There's more persecution to come. The fifth seal and the cry of the souls under the altar is the setup for the judgment that is revealed in the sixth seal. When the sixth seal is opened, we see now a picture of what God promises to bring against the earth as a response to the prayers of the saints to bring about the vengeance of God in his wrath against those who have acted unjustly. When the sixth seal is open, notice how it's being described and notice how people respond to it. When we look at these two, we'll wrap up and be done. Notice how this sixth seal is, is described. What happens uh, in all creation and note, as we read these, remember the first four, first four horsemen? The description is so different. It's so much more cataclysmic. Verse 
um, verses 12 to 14, there's a list of seven items in creation. By the way, seven is not an accidental number in the book of Revelation. It's a picture of, it's a number showing completeness. We see seven items of creation elements that are being affected at the opening of the sixth seal. Verses 12 to 14, when I opened the sixth seal, I'm sorry, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree shreds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The judgment of God that happens with a sixth seal is so much greater and more terrifying than the first four judgments. If the first four were through ordinary means of, of judgment, uh, the, the judgment of the sixth seal is extraordinary, is described in extraordinary ways. Now we have a list of these seven items, earthquake, sun, moon, stars, sky, mountains, islands. Each of these seven items have shown up in prophecies in the Old Testament. Let me read a few. Joel 2. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In other words, these these signs in the in the heavenly realm, in the sky, in the sun, and, and stars, they are all going to be affected as signs that will happen before the great day of the Lord. Isaiah 34, 2-4. and four, two to four. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, and leaves as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Jesus, by the way, used these Old Testament images when he spoke to his disciples in Matthew 24 about the signs that will happen before his second coming. Now, the point of all this is that all creation, all creation will be affected, even those things that we think are untouchable or unmovable. Friends, for God, it is as easy to roll up the skies as it is for us to roll up a scroll. That's how easy it will be for God to deal with our creation. But notice the response that we get from humanity to these events. In verses 15 and on, we see another list of seven. Interesting. The list of humanity includes seven kinds, seven names, seven categories. Uh, Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. In other words, from kings to slaves, all humanity will be affected by the events of the sixth seal. Everyone. There's no one in some higher power. There's no one in some privileged seat of authority that can escape 
the events that will happen with the sixth seal. And notice what their reaction will be when these, these will happen. Look at verse 16, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Do you notice what they're doing? They're not trying to flee from death. They are actually now pursuing death, wishing to die, so they could not see the wrath of the Lamb. They would rather face death than come to grips with the wrath of the Lamb. In the fifth seal, the followers of God would rather face death rather than compromise their following of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. In seal 5 and seal 6, we have people, both categories, face death. The problem is the latter category of the sixth seal want to face death when it's too late. When there's nothing they can do to escape from the wrath of the Lamb. And from, lists, from the list of, of those described in, in, in in, in, in verse 15 and 15, notice that of, of all those seven descriptions of categories of people, notice there is a, a noticeable discrepancy. While it, the spectrum is all humanity, notice what, what five of the seven descriptions describe. People who are in power, and with riches. Kings, generals, powerful, rich. It's the people who think they, can, they have it all. It's the people who think they are in control. The people who think that they have security for their own lives. Now, do not take from this that only the rich or the powerful will face the wrath of the Lamb. And somehow the poor people are, 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 you know, have an easier way to go through the wrath of the Lamb. That's not the point. The, the emphasis here is all humanity... Free and slave. Those who have nothing will also face the same thing. But the emphasis of the descriptions of the seven is is to jolt out those among humanity who think that they can face that day safely and be at ease. That nothing will happen to them. They've been able to manage their lives. They've been able to manage kingdoms. They've been able to provide for others. They'll be able to provide for themselves. Oh, friends... This picture is here to try to awaken the dwellers of the earth to say, even those who, are, who feel most secure for that day will stand preferring to die rather than face the wrath of the Lamb. Now ask yourself, what are the things that give you a sense of safety? What are the things that give you a sense of being at ease when you are dealing with the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ? What are the things that you pursue at the expense of being ready for that day? I love how one commentator said the sixth seal shows that in the end, what counts, it's God's judgment, not social status. In other words, it it does not matter what you accomplish. It does not matter what you are able to achieve what status you're able to have on this earth. What matters is whether or not 
you will be ready to face that day when the wrath of the Lamb will be revealed. But notice the contrast. Because these things are not put here coincidentally. There's a contrast between the rest that is promised to the souls under the altar. The rest that is promised to them. The white robe that is given them. And the, and the tragic and the horrifying experience of those who used to be in control and used to be at ease and now are facing the wrath of God. What a contrast between the five, fifth, and sixth seal. And I wonder, my friend, of which category do you and I want to be a part of? That's a question of the day. Would we rather be with those under the fifth seal? Martyrdom, though it may require? Or would we rather be living life, enjoying it to the full now, and totally unprepared for that day of the wrath of the Lamb? Friends, a way to escape the wrath of God is not to try to hide from it. It will be futile to do so. Instead, the only way to escape the coming wrath of God is to take to heart the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, who gave himself, who gave his blood to be shed, to ransom people for God, to prepare them for that day. So when that day will come, it will be a day of coronation, a day of of being awarded the, the white robe, the rewards that God has in store for his people. Friends, responding to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ will cost us everything. Responding to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ will cost us everything. I remember recently the testimony about a missionary who was going on in a different land and he was warned. He was warned that if he goes to that place, he might be killed. And the answer he gave back was, Sir, I have already died. I came. And it's not only the death that we give when we surrender to missions. It's a death that we experience when we surrender our lives to Jesus for salvation. We die to ourselves. Next week's baptism will be like a dying, dying to self, dying to sin, but dying with Jesus. Friends, the question we have to ask is which of the two categories we want to be a part of those who die because of Jesus and because of his word or those who die without Jesus and without any hope to face the wrath of the Lamb. Friends, the opening of the first six seals reveal important truths for us. With the first coming of Christ, God has began revealing his judgments against the earth in a measured and limited way. His first four judgments brought the four horsemen to awaken us, to call us, to realize and to to acknowledge that security and safety is not in what this earth offers us. But the fifth and the sixth seal tell us there is more judgment to come at the very end of the end of the age. And that judgment will affect all creation. Nothing that we can do or have can help us hide from it. The only hope we have is to turn to Christ now that there's still room. Would you bow with me in prayer?
Father, even in revealing your judgments to us, you are gracious because you have provided a way of escape and you reveal these plans for us while it is not too late. Father, we pray for all those who might be hearing this message this morning, who might be at ease, who might think they have all the time in the world, who might think this is not going to affect them. Father, we pray that you would open their eyes, open their ears, and enable them, O Lord, to respond to you, to trust you, to turn away from their own lives, thinking that they have control over themselves, to turn away and surrender to you, who have given your Son, so that you can have us for your glory and honor and praise. Father, we pray that you would work in mighty ways in us. Enable us to be ready for that day. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.